Hi, I'm James Swallow, Star Trek novelist, and you're listening to Beyond Trek. Red alert. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Beyond Trek Podcast. In the room today, I've got Big J, Renzo, I'm Dag, and we have special guest, author James Swallow. Thanks for joining us, James. Hey, everybody. Good to be here. If you can't tell from the background, we're here to talk about CODA, specifically uh, how James Swallow got wrapped up in this crazy transitional trilogy of epic proportions. Everybody here has already read Moments Asunder, so there will be a spoiler segment, uh, and you can fast forward to that if you're interested in it, but we'll warn you, if you haven't read Moments Asunder, you'll want to stop then. <sighs> and you should read Moments Asunder and read it like now. Yeah, like, fantastic. just pause so. and read the book, then come back. Yeah, it's the audio sure. book. just a couple hours. Oh, <laughs> fair. Yeah, I, I got the audiobook because, and I was, I, I know I told Bag this, but for me, to sit down and read a book is like impossible. Uh, but with an audiobook, I could listen to it some here, some there, when I was driving at the gym, going downstairs, take a break, changing laundry, all of that. And uh, that made it a lot easier. And that was my first ever audiobook. So, and that's how I'm going to get the next one in the, in the series. So looking forward to that. Oh, that's awesome. You know, we got, uh, we, we, for a while, we weren't doing many audio books for some it used to, it used to be back in the day, uh, mm -hmm. they would come out and take a set and they would be abridged. Uh, and then they kind of went away for a while, but now they're coming back on CD and digital. So a lot of the stuff we're getting released is coming out. Robert Petkoff's doing the voices for it. Um, it's really great stuff. So there's a lot of really great stuff out there for you to listen to if you, if you want to. Yeah, I, I love Robert Petkoff. Uh, I've been listening to the Star Trek audiobooks. It's almost like they've had a renaissance with Star Trek audiobooks that kind of mirrors that other star franchise where there's now sound effects and, and, and your music. It's not just a, uh, a turgid read through of an abridged, you know, script. Uh, no, and I I'll just uh, jump in right there. Uh, I've been trying for a while to get Simon is used to, to do full cast audio dramas, mm. like in oh, not just a, like a talking book, but in a, like a proper radio play. Because yeah. myself and my fellow colleague author uh, Una McCormack, we both worked on the the Doctor Who franchise and mm -hmm. and a bunch of other sort of um, full cast audio dramas. We've been saying for a while, let's do Trek. You know, let's let's do something interesting with Star Trek. Yeah, it's an idea we've been kicking around. You know, trying to get uh, CBS interested. There's, there, we've had some conversations about it, but things have been moving very, very slowly. But um, that's something I would absolutely love to do because it's a fantastic way to tell stories. Yeah. How do I drop my card in that bucket? Just asking for a friend. <laughs> feel, free, you know, um, feel free to drop a line to C anybody at CBS licensing. You know, talk to talk to Simon Schuster, talk to John Van Sitters over at CBS, talk to. You know, any the editorial team, anybody you think is in a with, with their hands on the lever of power and say like, hey, you know yeah. what? Star Trek audio would be a super awesome idea. You know what I was that, just that thinking? That goes for everybody watching this. Too. You, you were, you're talking about Robert Petkoff and his and his reading of it. I just thought we've at the end of our talking to the three authors of the of the books, we've got to get that guy. I would love <laughs> to be able to talk wow. to him because with my first audiobook. I was not expecting kind of the doing verse, voice impersonation, sort of, or at least sounding different for the for the characters. And when he got to doing uh, uh, Renee, 
uh, Picard and Beverly Crusher, I was thinking, whoa, you know, that's some good effort there. Uh, having to do kids, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, Dag, side note, we've got to get Robert Petkoff on here. We'll get Robert Petkoff. But enough about Robert Petkoff. We're here right. to talk to James. <laughs> Talking to James, yes. James. Love the goatee. i got to tell you that first. That is, that's epic. When we, uh, when we interviewed Dayton, he said that plans for this started in about 2018 when uh, uh, Kirsten uh, contacted him about, you know, oh, Picard is happening. And uh, he says at the back of, in, in the closing of one of these books, that... Uh, in the afterward. That you and David had been having conversations about the kind of the same thing when Dayton got involved and sat down at the table and had said, you know, basically, yeah, it's a good thought, but here's where Kirsten's taking it. And I was wondering if you, uh, if you remember that conversation, if you wanted to talk about how, what your idea with David was and how Dayton's conversation changed that. Well, you know, to, to, to kind of cover it in detail, really, you have to dial the clock back even a little further than that, because, you know, we all knew that when when Picard was announced, even before we knew what the show was going to be, we knew it was going to kind of put a torch towards what we've done in the, uh, the novel verse, because the moment they said, well, we're bringing back Picard and it's this many years after Nemesis, we were all looking at each other and going, well, that's smack dab in the middle of the lit verse continuity we've all been writing for the last 20 years this is not going to end well for us because the rule is you know that the the books always follow the lead the show makes so we have to do we have to bring our stuff into line with them because that's the way the license works so we knew that something was going to happen we didn't really know what the something was and we didn't know the full dimensions of the way that the show was going to play out but even just the initial inkling of the idea was kind of like we were all like kind of oh, okay this is going to be a problem for us. So we've been talking kind of vaguely about this. I think all of us had kind of our rough ideas of like how it would play out. And at the same time, Kirsten came to me and she said, uh, we'd like you to do a Star Trek Picard novel. And I said, well, how's that going to work? Because if you're changing the continuity for this TV show, which you obviously are, and they'd asked me to do a Picard novel. Uh, we, we had a couple of ideas. Originally, the Picard novel they wanted me to do was a Seven of Nine story. If you've seen the show, Seven of Nine turns up uh, about halfway through the series. And there's a little bit of backstory, but not a lot about how she got from the end of Voyager to where she is when she picks up in Picard. And we were talking about writing the novel that would tell that story, is how she got from there to okay. there. So we developed a, a narrative for, I'm kind of going off on a sidebar here, but stick with me. I will, I will get back to the point, I, I believe me. I'm right so, there with you. So, uh, so we, we developed that story for a little while. Um, and then Kirsten came back to me and said, you know, th this is a really good, really strong story. And we're kind of thinking that maybe we'd like to do it on the TV show at some point, because it's just too good to do in a side novel. And I was like, yeah, I can see your point. So we decided that, you know, the, we keep our powder dry on the seven of nine backstory, put that to one side. And so Kirsten said, well, look, we've got some other options here. We're looking at doing a story about Worf becoming captain of the Enterprise E, because of course, remember in Picard, Picard turns in his badge and gun and kind of walks out of the door, right? Right. And Worf is his first officer, so Worf becomes captain of the Enterprise unexpectedly, you know, in a situation that maybe he didn't want to be captain. He didn't want to take the job that way, right? He wanted to earn it, not just be given it because Picard walks out the door. 
So we said, that's a story we could tell. And the other story was, what about Riker and Troy on the USS Titan way back before the events that we see them in the TV show, before their son Thad um, dies of the disease that he gets and, and that kind of stuff. And we had these two stories. We're like, could we, be, could we tell these two stories in one novel? And I looked at it and I said, you know what? There's too much going on here for it to be one book. This is two different ideas. This is the Wharf story and the Riker and Troy story. And I said, you know, I got a lot of love for Riker and Troy because I'd written about them in, in the novel verse for the Titan novels. And I said, I want to do the Riker and Troy on Titan story. Let somebody else tell that Wharf story. So maybe that will, I don't know if that novel actually will happen, but I hope it will because it sounds like a really cool idea. So I was going to write this novel. But this novel is set in the, in the Picard continuity, and so I'm being sent the scripts to, to read through, and I'm seeing, okay, this is definitely, that's not compatible, because, you know, we got rid of the Borg in the novels, and the Borg are a very big part of this story, so, okay, that isn't compatible, and this isn't compatible. And I said to Kirsten, I'm telling a Titan story, but Titan is, although it was originated in Star Trek Nemesis, the movie, we made it a living, breathing thing in the novels. So the thing it is in the novel verse, is that also the thing it is in the Picard TV show, it can't be exactly the same thing. It has to be a version of that thing if, if you're following it, right? So, mm -hmm. so we had a long discussion. So my primary discussion with her was about how to do a Picard version of Titan that would parallel the novel verse version of Titan. And I'm writing all of this stuff while in the back of my head, we're thinking about the Coda trilogy at the same time. Uh, even even at one point i actually said to kirsten maybe we should do the coda books first and then i do the picard novel when she's like no no we want to do it in this order so so for me i kind of did cart before horse right i wrote yeah i wrote a tv verse new tv timeline novel which is the dark veil my star trek mm -hmm. picard and then i had to come back and do the coda thing so for me the order of it was kind of all a bit weird and in amongst all of that happening these ideas are bubbling away it's like you know if we have to bring the curtain down on the novel verse, how are we going to do this? And I've got to tell you, I was not a fan of the idea at all. You know, it, my first reaction, you know, I talk about this in, every one of us has done an afterword in each of the books. Oh, we talk, good. We, I oh, greatly enjoy Dayton's. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're, you're going to get the same, you're going to get the same thing from me. You're going to get the same thing from Dave in each book, because I think, I think Dayton said this, I heard him do an interview recently with Literary Treks and they asked him about that and he said he felt that it was the first time he had ever written an afterword in one of his books and he put it in there because he felt this was such an important thing that he wanted to get his his position across. He wanted people to understand this is where my head was at when I was writing the book. And we all said, you know what, we all should do this. Not just because of the position the series is going to fill, but we also felt like if this is us kind of signing off on the novel verse, we want to walk out and kind of have this last moment and go, this is why I made these choices. So people will understand where it came from and understand the kind of the thought process that we had. So we were talking about all these different ideas. How do we bring this stuff together? How do we, how do we come up with an interesting process to, to, that will be a, a dynamic story that people would really like, but also something that kind of gives honors and does justice to everything that has come before in the last 20 years. And I just couldn't see a way through it. And the guys came to me and said, we want you to be part of this. And my initial reaction was negative. I was like, the fanboy part of me was like, no, this is a terrible idea. This is, this is some, I don't want to do this. I do not want to say goodbye to this. I don't want this, was it Picard says, I don't want the game to end. Oh. And I had this really strong visceral reaction to it, you know, and the, and that was, that was my fanboy heart there going, no, you know, we can't end this, it can't end. But then I realized 
I don't have a choice really because this is gonna this is going to end and and this is the way things are going to play out so you you know you can dig your heels in and, and hope it doesn't happen or you can do something about it and it was Dave Mack who who kind of Dave talked me around I have to be honest right it was uh I was over in New York for for the Thriller Fest convention and it was uh, it was fourth of July weekend uh, and we went out for a, he said come come along we're gonna go out for a barbecue and we went to a barbecue a house of a friend Keithy Candido was there another Star Trek writer Glenn Howman Love was him. there another Star Trek writer there was a so it was there were a lot of sort of Trek nerds in the house that day and you know and the beer flowed and so did the brisket and you know and we were having a really great time and uh, and Dave said let's just let's just you know sneaky fellow to he's he said let's just sit down and have a talk about this after and I got you liquored up. Yeah, go and look it up. Yeah, you know, we were, all pretty, we were all pretty lubricated at that point. But damn him if he didn't talk me around. And he said, like, and I think that the thing that he said to me that really made me kind of decide I wanted to be part of it is he said, if we don't do this, who will? If we don't do if if we don't do this, who can who can really do justice to this? Who who are you confident in? Who could do it? You know, are you confident in your own skills as a writer? And I thought, you know. Do I really want to walk away from this, this this fantastic opportunity? And I kind of looked past my initial reaction, and I thought, you know, even though this is the an ending to something, I wanted to be part of it. I wanted to, I wanted to be able to pay respect to all the writers that I've read because I'm a reader as well as you know I was a Star Trek novel reader before I ever started writing them. I used to write the the official reviews for the um, the official Star Trek magazine here in the UK. I did that for years before I even started professionally writing Star Trek fiction. So I've read a lot of Trek novels and I have a lot of respect for the writers and a lot of the um, a lot of the, the, the Trek authors are also um, people when I was starting out as a writer, were people, the first people I met who were professional writers was uh, Diane Duane and Peter Moore, a husband and wife couple who wrote some really fantastic Star Trek books. They were the first people who ever listened to the younger version of me saying, Hey, I'd like to be a writer who treated me with respect and said, you know, you know, this is a this is a thing you really could do. So I have a lot of love for these books and a lot of love for the work that went into them and the people who created them. So I thought I need to be part of this. And once we started having that conversation, we started assembling the ideas. It just the whole thing just kind of caught fire, figuratively and literally, to be quite honest. And um, we just started assembling these ideas. And little by little, the, the three of us got together and started kind of creating out of whole cloth how we were going to tell this epic conclusion. So Dave and I stitched together some stuff. And then Dave went off uh, and did a, a, another convention. I went back home to the UK. Dave went off to do a, a convention in the US. And I remember he brought, so he told me he brought the ideas to Dayton. And he said, so this is what we're thinking. And Dayton said, dude, it's much worse than you think. That's his quote from his afterward. Yeah. <laughs> And, and it was like, okay, and, and away we went, you know, and then, it, and then it became kind of almost like weekly Skype meetings, like, like we're doing that right now, where we would, yeah. you know, we would be chatting, we still have like a, we had like a, 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 a chat sort of room set up as well. So we would have like Skype conversations. And then we'd also be chatting on Twitter and stuff like that. And just throwing ideas backwards and forwards. The, uh, the, the chat group uh, was called Wormhole Death Cannon. And that's uh, your new band, right? Yeah. And that's uh, and that's canon with one N, not two. Ooh. And so and and that's an obscure that's an obscure joke which will become clear uh, as the novels go on, and uh, what that actually means. So you know, um, and we had a lot of fun doing it, and it was you know 
it's a weird kind of it's been a weird bittersweet kind of project to work on because on the one hand we have these we've, we've been playing with such huge stakes and all of you know everything's everything's all in you know all the chips are in the basket it's it's just you know everything's going on and loads of things being pulled in different directions and we've, we've been taking really big swings um but it's also it's also bittersweet because you know we know what we are doing is we are kind of running down the curtain on something that's been going on for 20 years something that has given me so much not just personally but also professionally well so, there was oh, i'm sorry Renzo, go ahead no no you first uh so there was a part that you said that really interested me just recently was that now you know this is going to happen you're told this is going to happen you didn't like it you're kind of against it didn't want to do it but at that point because you know this is happening regardless did you have the sense of well i don't want to be even if i don't like what's happening and i'm against the idea i don't want to be on the sideline watching it happen anyway because i know it's going to happen and not be involved because do you think you were going to have that feeling of okay now i'm now i'm reading it i rejected this idea but now that i'm reading it this is i could have done so much better i, I should have been involved in this now with you've got regret on top of everything else that well even if i didn't agree with it i should have been a part of it so that I, i'm not losing sleep every night thinking this is what i should have done this is what i would have done if I had been involved, even grudgingly, is is that kind of the feeling that you had? Yeah, you kind of talking about like FOMO, right? Kind of fear of missing out. Yes, yeah, yeah FOMO. There's, there's definitely a little bit of that. I mean, I can say hand on heart, there's 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 a whole bunch of really talented writers, there, and I'm absolutely sure that if if I couldn't have done it, they would have got somebody else who would have done an equally good job. I mean, you know, we wanted to have more writers involved in this. I mean, you know, I don't know if Dayton said this in the conversation you had with him. Yeah, but originally we had the idea of it was going to be four books, not three. And said five. There was even talk about making more, yeah, there's even talk about making it more than that, you know, and we wanted to have other writers involved. Again, you know, I mentioned earlier my colleague, uh, Una McCormack, who's a really brilliant writer. And I would have loved to have Una on board with this project. The, the timeline that we were on, we just couldn't make it happen. Yeah, um, I read know, Una's the, Picard novel. <clears throat> yeah, you know, and she's like, she's uh, her work is just sublime, you know, and I'd I'd love to have seen her sort of put her kind of energy into into this project. And sadly, it wasn't to be. But you know, but there's still you know she's still going to continue to write for Star Trek. She's got um, uh, another Picard novel coming out, Second Sight, uh, I think early next year, uh, and that's going to be fantastic. So you know, it's not like we're not going to see uh, any more work from those other writers. But yeah, there, but to go back to your point, a big J's point is yeah, I think that there was part of me didn't want to do it. But then the other part of me, I think the the bit that, that Dave kind of leaned on was, you know, this is a unique opportunity. When am I? When would I ever have the chance to do something like this again? You know, I've I've worked on uh, in the in the Warhammer Forty Thousand franchise. I worked on the Horus Heresy storyline, mm -hmm. which is a mega epic of kind of fifty plus novels that's gone on for years and years and years. And that's a story of of similar scope about a, an intergalactic civil war about huge cosmic events and stuff that you know massive sort of plot lines colliding and huge that's of a similar scope to the the timeline is much more compact and so it was that much more intense 
to try and get you know the the whole story out there at the end of the day it was an opportunity that i would have been a fool to turn down renzo you well, it's better to, it's better to be involved in it than not let's hear it renzo well, so first, Cadia fell before the guard did, which is very important to remember as far as the Horus Heresy is concerned. Um, but so I've got a couple questions about some of your other works in the Star Trek Litverse, right? Some things that, you know, I thought were very impressive. And I was wondering if at any point you'd considered uh, other works, essentially, or bringing some of those things in. Now, when we talked to Dayton in particular, he mentioned that you guys had free reign over pretty much the whole Litverse. You were in contact with other authors and talked about their characters and such and you respected their wishes with regards to the paths of those characters. So I was wondering, since you worked on the Star Trek Titan synthesis books with those uh, holographic avatars for ships, did you consider anything along those lines being brought into the Coda trilogy or some sort of like additional interfacing for the computers? Because to me, that strikes me very strongly of uh, Andromeda Ascendant, another Gene Roddenberry kind of idea. Um, does that, was anything like that considered at any point? Yeah, I mean, I thought about bringing back um, some of the characters that I created. I mean, you, one of the things that we've tried to do in the trilogy is pay respect to the works of other writers and the the crews. And you know, we 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 made a big list of like, well, who are the other characters that we know are out there? There's there's some um, you know the the crew of the the Gorkon, the from the from Keithy uh, Candido. Uh, yeah. There's the there's the crew of the, the Prometheus the, as well. You guys wrote out. Yeah. yeah, the yeah, you know, get, we were trying to like this. Like, can we even, even if in the smallest possible way, can we just, even if it's just a shout out, saying, "Oh, look, there goes, there's the starship Prometheus, just kind of over there in that fleet," just to give everybody as much as we possibly could, some kind of nod and some kind of shout out, saying, like, you know, we see you, we remember you, we respect the work that you did, is that you are part of this ending as much as you've been part of the, the whole continuity, uh, and so because of that. While I did think about bringing in my own stuff, I didn't. I thought it wasn't really the place for me to be kind of too self-indulgent, because I'm already writing a novel, and I thought I don't want it to be all about. We're just going to talk about the bits of Star Trek that Jim invented. You know, that's that's not what this. This is not about me reminding everybody how great my Star Trek is. It's about me regarding re reminding everybody how great all of our collective effort is. That's so a good way to look at it. Yeah, I did think about that, but I, but I wanted. I thought it's, it, it would be ungenerous of me to kind of pull the spotlight back to my own characters. I wanted to kind of broaden it and say, this is an opportunity to have all of these characters, as many as possible, kind of come on screen and have their moment in the spotlight. Even if it's just a few lines of dialogue, even if it's just a short scene, to bring these characters on and give them a moment that feels real and true to who they are. And so was anything out of bounds then? Were there any authors who you were like, well, we obviously can't touch the Judith Reeve Garfield's Shatnerverse novels, but like, were there any other like, sets or stories that you guys were just like we can't reference this we're not allowed to kind of thing well it's, it's funny people always talk about the shantnerverse as being like a kind of separate timeline and it always kind of, it's kind of soft canon yeah you know, a few times that i have kind of like i put a, a couple of references to shantnerverse stories in my novels nobody's really ever kind of picked me up on it i just do it oh. fun, you know um <laughs> see if they're paying attention kind of but i um i mean the only not so much off limits, but you know, we we had a long discussion with Kirsten about what she'd done with Voyager and the Full Circle Fleet, in her, and the way that she tied off the the Voyager novels didn't dovetail with what we were going to do with Coda. And we said, well, you know, the Voyager stuff's kind of gone off way off over there, and the Coda stuff is heading in way off over here, and 
we we had we do have some cross-connecting material. There are some Voyager characters who do turn up in the novels, but Torres the, the and flip. Paris is so far. I think the only two, right? And Tuvok too. Oh, well, that's right. Spoilers, um, jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Small spoilers. Um, uh, in fact, I got to so. I got to write um, a couple of scenes with Tom Paris that I really enjoyed uh, doing in Ashes of Tomorrow. We had a lot of fun um, writing him into it. So we've uh, that wasn't so much off limits. It was just kind of we were respecting the choice that Kirsten had made with those novels, and we tried to do that with all of the other authors as well that we worked with. Is saying you know well where did you leave these characters what did you do with them you know what direction can we take them in that you're going to be happy with and hopefully hopefully we've done that and we tried to also you know even as as, as much as we possibly could any sort of hanging threads from previous novels stuff that hadn't been explained away if we could find a way to kind of say well this is what happened with that even if it's again just one line of dialogue just somebody just going oh yeah this thing happened just to sort of tie off as many possible bits as we could before we run the curtain down. Yeah, no, I think he has did a great job with using exposition to do so without it being like ham-fisted or ham-handed feeling. So I thought that was really, really good. I actually really like that in stories when they go back, not only reference some continuity, but like explain it further to make it more, veris have, it, have it have more verisimilitude with the rest of the story. So I really like that about these, about the first book at that's, least. I can't can't read the, the rest yet. I mean, that's, I like to I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah, go I'd like to talk about canon. And this was something that I talked to Dayton Ward a little bit when we had that interview. So as you know, when it comes to the film and movies, canon is you're going to have fans out there that are meticulously watching and noting and, and picking up anything in canon, whether it's a prequel series like Enterprise or discovery and coming up strange new worlds or even the uh, Picard series or anything going forward there's there's always this kind of a watchdog group that's checking for any deviation from canon and in speaking with with Dayton it sounds like that is also maintained with the writers you, you try to uh, anything that was done in the past in the in the lit verse is honored going forward. And so what I asked him, and I'd like to ask you as well, is that how far back into the books do you do you go to make sure you're not just completely or blatantly trampling over something that happened because the the lit verse is its own canon. So in a way, just like the films, in TV series, they, they can't just go off the reservation from a prior or forthcoming series or movie. And it sounds like it's the same with the books, but however, the books are, my assumption is, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, the book verse is probably not uh, consumed and absorbed as much as the episodes in the movies. So even with, even with the writers, it may be that unless you've read how many star trek books have there have there been i mean it's safe to plus. say uh, okay three um, well i mean like all time going going back even to the 90s 70s, 80s and 90s. pocket book and everything yeah probably close to 500 then yeah okay really i was yeah. thinking it would be okay so then that's not nearly as many as i as i thought but but anyway to, to get to my point how do you keep up with canon 
from all the books, from all the different authors, do you literally have to make sure that you're with a group of people like, like I am with Dag and Renzo between the three of us, we can very well cover the gaps in, in memories and uh, episode names, what happened here and there. Is that the same on the, the book first side? You've got to have a group you're with that can really pull from all 500 novels and say, oh, well, no, wait, you can't do that because in this novel 15 years ago, this person did that. Is, is yeah, it, is, I mean, we, we, we kind of, we're self-checking, right? So, you know, we, we have the, the other authors, especially on a collaborative project like this, plus we have the editors. So everybody is kind of double checking everything. Um, I'm not going to say we're perfect because there's always an error that sneaks in. Uh, you know, I know, I know absolutely positively there's going to be a mistake somewhere in the Coda series. There's going to be something we got wrong. And not a typo. Will go, you know, someone's going to say like, oh, you know, that character's still alive and he was supposed to be dead or he's dead and supposed to be alive. And, you know, there's going to be a mistake we made. We're, we're not, we're only human, you know, we're not perfect, but we try mm -hmm. our best to be as close to perfect as we possibly can get. I mean, in terms of like the, the, the canonicity of the, the, the lit verse, I mean, if you go back to the novel Avatar, which was kind of the, we, we kind of think of that as being the, the, the sort of the, 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 the current phase. If you think of it like, I'm, like maybe how they would say with the comics where you have like Golden Age comics, Silver Age comics, Bronze Age comics. I think if, if you look at the Bronze Age of, of Star Trek Litverse, it kind of starts with Avatar. And after that point, that was when there was a kind of concerted effort where we were all kind of saying, let's try and make sure everything meshes together. Then if you look before that, you have the Silver Age stuff, which is like the early pocketbooks material where some of it cross connects and some of it doesn't. And some of it is completely isolated and some of it is completely crazy and out there and could never fit with anything else. And then you go back to, and you have the Golden Age stuff, which is where the really early books where you have the Bantam stuff and the James Blish novels, you know, books like Spock Messiah and Spock Must Die and stuff like Trek to Mad World, all those kind of early ones, which exist completely in their own continuity and some of them are just really really out there so i would say anything in the bronze age era anything from that kind of avatar onwards we all made an effort to either read it or if not be knowledgeable about what takes place in those stories and try to kind of keep the continuity as close as possible from that point onwards and that is the kind of that that's the sort of the the, the 20 year period of of sort of contemporary trek lit where it became serialized you know after the end of deep space nine after the end of voyager where we said you know instead of just telling isolated stories we're going to carry those shows on so you know this this show ends at season seven but the books are going to be season eight nine ten eleven you know and we're just going to keep on going with those characters and keep on building on that serialized narrative and coda is an ending to that era of star trek fiction so i guess um, whatever comes next, the platinum era, whatever you want to call it, right? <laughs> that come next, that will be yeah. existing in its in a, in a new continuity. Okay, so let's talk about the Bronze Era, and it sounds like from we, the way you described it, the Gold Era is its own thing. <clears throat> whatever they did, the Silver Era is its own uh, era, is its own thing. Bronze, it's like okay, here's our demarcation point with what we're doing. If we can. If, if we're able to honor and not completely contradict the gold era <clears throat> or the silver silver era, great. But we're, we're kind of like, this is 
our version of the new 52, like from the from the DC Comics, that this is our thing. Now, once you establish that, did it become this setup where any author that's going to be involved in the Bronze Era, this is our group. There, there's not going to be someone writing a novel in this era that we don't know about that's not part of this group. It needs to be, if you're going to do this, you need to be part of, of this collaboration. There, there's no independent writer that might be looking at your stuff you need to have them in the room or on a call with you it was it did you guys take it upon yourselves to make it a a, a group effort that if you're going to do a novel in in this part then you need to be brought in on the inner, inner circle to make sure we're keeping things serialized and consistent like did you have a primer essentially a primer for new authors who are going to write their first book something to catch them up or help them out no nothing like that at all it was much more you know much more informal than that um okay. i mean it was more along the lines of you know it, there, there was never kind of like you know uh, a gateway saying you know unless you're part of this in group you are not going to get to write a star trek novel you know there's never anything like that because i think everybody who came on to write a star trek novel already had a level of expertise and knowledge about the material because you have to have that because you wouldn't even be coming into the job if you didn't already know the background and the material so there was already kind of an expectation that you had to have a level of knowledge about it before you even kind of pick up your pen and then past that point i think there was a there was just a sense i think amongst all of us as writers is that it's just respectful to to pay respect to the work of the other writers so what you what you would do is you know you i would get an email from another writer saying oh jim i noticed you did this thing in this book with this character um i'm going to do this other thing do you have any input or thoughts and you know it could be down to like you know please don't kill that guy off because i want to use him in another novel or yeah you know go nuts do whatever you want or you know here's my thoughts on the backstory of this character but you feel free to do whatever you want with it it was much more collaborative a very much more free and easy. There wasn't a structure to it. It was just, you know, a group of people making themselves available. So if if somebody comes in and says, I want to write this story and I want your opinion on it, that opinion is there. If they want to write the story and they want to do it their own way, they can do it their own way. Because ultimately at the end, it's the editor's choice to decide about whether, whether some if something feels like it's not in continuity, the editor is the one who makes the final decision about that and says, well, maybe you can't do that in your novel because it contradicts this book. Well, you can't do that because it contradicts this TV episode. That decision is made at a level kind of above the writers. But the but the sort of the bedrock of the writers, that sort of collegiate space where we can say, like, we're all here. You want to work together with us? And the door is always open. That's, so the, kind of, that's the kind of, um, I guess, the, the kind of Atmosphere. environment. Yeah. Create. That's really cool. So you didn't have a, and I know Dax got a question uh, real quick. So you didn't have any writers that were just going off the reservation. For example, the we talked about the big event, and for anyone listening or watching, there's gonna be some spoilers on previous Trek books. <clears throat> but for example, some of the big things that happened in the, <clears throat> geez, excuse me, in the Bronze Era, like ending the Borg. You didn't have anyone come in, whether it was that or the death of Janeway and decide, well, in my novel, I'm going to do a story about the Borg or include this character. And I'm just going to do my own thing and not even worry about what, what those guys did. And I'm talking, talking about those big deviations. Weren't you, weren't you taking a chance that somebody would come along and 
just just do that and kind of wreck what you're doing? Is that something that the the editor would just say, hey, you know, you're you haven't really worked with these guys. You're doing this thing, but we've got to tell you, it deviates too far from what's already happened that you can't have that big of a contradiction. Yeah, I mean, uh, they, if, if someone had come in, say, like, you're talking about, like, the Destiny trilogy mm -hmm. uh, that Dave Mack wrote, which was basically where uh, we got rid of the board. <clears throat> so, hypothetically, let's say, if an author came in after the Destiny trilogy had been written and said, I've got this great idea for a Borg novel, what they would have got is, we'll stop you right there. Because that person would not have written that book because they said, we, we, you know, we're not going to do a Borg novel. Um, you know, I mean, Shatner got away with it because it's William Shatner, right? Shatner right. can do everything yeah. Shatterverse. But if someone had turned up after a big event had been changed, you know, after Janeway was killed off, I mean, we brought Janeway back later, right? But if someone had come along and said, I want to do a Janeway story about Captain Janeway doing these things and say, well, no, she got promoted to Admiral and she got killed. So you can't tell that story. Right. So it wouldn't have even, word one would not even have been written. Oh, okay. Welcome to fanfic. <laughs> right. There's other ways to publish this if you must. Right. So, um, I mean, we've, I've had, I've talked to some uh, writers, like new uh, fan writers as well, who want to kind of make the jump to being professional writers. Uh, and they said, well, you know, that's, that's too restrictive. That's, uh, you know, um, I can't work like that. And I, and, and my answer is like, well, then you're not going to do this for a living because that is the nature of what um, tie-in fiction is. As I said this at the, right. at the top of the show, is we are led by the decisions that are made by the show. And to a lesser degree, we're led by the decisions that the licenses are made. So if a licensor says, for example, we don't want any, uh, we don't want any Deep Space Nine novels. We're not going to tell any Deep Space Nine stories. And then you come to them and say, I want to tell a Deep Space Nine story. They're going to go, we're not going to change our mind for you. That decision was made at a corporate level that's done right and that and that's yeah i mean that would never happen to be honest because the, because it's not like they're going to stop doing ds nice but you see the point i'm making right yeah it's if the if a decision had already been made for another writer to just come in and go i'm just going to completely ignore that well you know rude don't you think yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the basic level right yeah but also, now you're blacklisted yeah it's, it's like you know um i don't think it, no I don't, nobody would ever be blacklisted you know it's it's it, we're, much, we're much too friendly for that kind of thing it's more like if somebody came in and said i want to do a thing that run rides roughshod over everybody else's work we would have had a polite conversation with him and said like do you really want to do that isn't there a better story that you could tell you know if you're if you're talented enough to have got into the room why is it the first thing you want to do is you know, reverse something that somebody else had done. Um, why, why not tell a really cool story of your own? You know, yep. you know, it's, it's we're we're a big friendly team, and we've always been. I, I felt, I've always felt like it's been very very welcoming, and I think you know it, it just seems much more likely to me that a writer would come in and we'd say like, welcome, you know, come on in. The water's lovely. We've got yeah. there's so many great stories out there to tell. Um, why limit yourself to undoing something that's already been done? <laughs> well said. Speaking of uh, the level of collaboration that you have with the other writers, <clears throat> I want to take this back to Ashes of Tomorrow. How do you? How did you navigate the the responsibility of grabbing the loose end from Moment Asunder and weaving that into Oblivion's Gate? Well, you know. When you say it like that, you, you know, you look at the covers of the books and you see Dane's name, my name, Dave's name, 
and it, and, and it looks like what you're looking at is three discrete objects. And that is not what that series is. Mm. Because the three of us sat down, although obviously I wrote the middle book, Dave wrote the last book, Dave wrote the first, we physically sat there and typed those words out. But the, but the entire story concept, the, the whole thing, the whole object that is Star Trek Coda is the creation of the three of us. If you look in the opening page of the book, you'll see something that's a unique credit. I don't think it's ever been done with any of the Star Trek books is you'll see where it says Star Trek Coda, you know, written by Dayton Ward, James Swallow and David Mack. And we share, the three of us share credit for the creation of the whole storyline because we created it together. It was a collaborative effort that we sat there and we, we decided we're going to tackle this like we're writing a television miniseries. We're going to break mm -hmm. the story piece by piece down into elements. We're all going to collaborate. We're all going to put story ideas together and we're all going to discuss how this story comes together. And it was, you know, it, it was even kind of late, late in the stage of development when we decided who was going to write what book. Because originally, in the early stages, I was going to write the first book in the series. And then I couldn't make the scheduling work. And we discussed it and we said, like, you know, look, it's better if, if Dayton does the first series, I'll do the second book. I think we always, we always felt like Dave was going to be the guy who would end cap it. I think pretty much Dave's position as tail and charlie kind of coming in there and like finishing it off and and bringing that that final closure to the story because he's so good at that sort of thing he's really good at doing the big swings these massive sort of cosmic events and um, we always felt like you know dave should be the guy who kind of you know carries it to home plate for us as it were whereas you know dana and i were discussing well who goes first and who goes second and that was just a pro that was purely like whose calendar works best you know so that's how we we ended up deciding the kind of the running order. So you always knew that David was going to be the last one. Yeah, I always okay. felt like you know that he was the best man for that job. So, um, um, but building the entire structure of the narrative was very much a group effort, and it, it's great because it feels like for me as a writer, there's a little bit of my creation in Dayton's book, and there's a little bit of me in Dave's book, and the same for them is each of us have a kind of our, our little fingerprints on everybody else's story because it was such a group effort to create this, uh, this sort of epic trilogy. Hi, Dr. Phil Flox, also known as John Billingsley speaking. I am the president of the board of the Hollywood Food Coalition. We serve terrific multi-course meals to the unhoused and to those in need seven nights a week. We assist as many as 100 nonprofits with their food needs, buttressing extraordinary social service programs, we work with community partners to address issues of food insecurity here in SoCal. We do lots of other great stuff, but how much time do we have? If you're in L.A., come and volunteer with us at hofoco.org volunteer. And any Federation credits you can spare go a long way. So when it comes to, uh, figuratively, you guys were like, locked yourselves in a studio or a house or apartment together and said, we're going to, we're going to live together figuratively on this <laughs> and, and work as a, work as a group. That's a, that's a big collaboration that, you know what, that reminds me of, I don't know if you're a Marvel fan or not, but for the infinity war series, those 20 movies, that, that came up before the, the end of the saga, it was the same thing. Everyone needed to be on 
kind of that the same page was yes you have your individual story individual kind of movie ish but this is the end goal so you need to keep that in mind carry that thread when you're working with all those directors and story writers so for you guys it, it's a you've got to be you all have to be knowing what you're all thinking and doing so was there storyboarding involved do you guys have a, a big like chalkboard or whiteboard and this is what i'm doing this is what we need to do this is what we need Dayton to set up david to close on et cetera, et cetera. was it was it like that kind of setup yeah a little bit like that i mean um it's funny you talk about the marvel movies you know one of the touchstones we had is we were saying this is our infinity war end game this is us ah. <laughs> you know we're, we're kind of we're definitely kind of one eye looking towards that as well and and also people have talked about um uh called, nicknamed this crisis on infinite treks you know kind of <laughs> yeah that's that's fantastic yeah. it is yeah. and uh, you know the original going back to the original dc crisis on infinite Earth comic book miniseries you know um and definitely as, yeah, yeah i'm a long time comics nerd as well so um there was definitely a little bit of that as well um i think you know touching on both of those kind of things but in terms of like you know the 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 magic whiteboard sort of thing dave um dave mack he's just awesome at these things and he put together um I, I hope we get to show it to people maybe when we're when we're all completely done and 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 spoilers are, are all out there maybe he'll he'll put this thing up online he drew this incredible complicated timeline diagram oh nice of where all of the events take place and all the events that we refer to throughout the novels and these branching universe things it's it's a work a work of mad genius art it's like you know it's almost like you know your conspiracy wall with the guy with the threads going in different directions and stuff. i love <laughs> that <laughs> the, the guy from wasn't that from uh, always sunny in philadelphia i mean the, it's been in a million the, things the, i thought right, it came yeah. from lower decks so yeah so so it's kind of so they drew, <laughs> they drew up this timeline which was which was great and, and actually that was some it was part of our pitch package as well because i remember when we were taking it to cbs licensing they were like you know we trust you guys with this because you've got the experience to do this but but we're not quite getting what you're doing and dave's like i'll draw you a picture and dave drew them a picture and went this is it and they're like oh okay now we see because it was because it's um i i, I the thing i say about this story is it's not complicated but it is complex yes and there are a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of stuff to kind of you know pay attention to so it's, it's like, you know, you, you have to, things that you'll read kind of maybe in moments asunder, which will seem like a smaller side and it doesn't seem like it matters, will will pay out in ways you don't expect when you read Ashes and Oblivion, you know, as, as the as the books move on. So we had that, um, uh, we had that, the, 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 the diagram, and we also had like a kind of Excel spreadsheet as well, working out the, 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 the timeline. It's like, who's going to be where? How long is it going to take for, to get from this place to that place? what characters are going to be on what ship when what thing happens that was something we were constantly working out is like you know can i have this guy no you can't because he's on that ship okay well i need him on my ship i need him on this ship to do this i need this character on the defiant to do this thing but that character's on the enterprise so we need to get them to the defiant via deep space nine while doing this and we're you know and and once we structured all those things out you know we, it was it was very useful as well because we would find like characters in certain places and certain positions suddenly we go oh if these two characters are together in this situation let's write that scene let's write these characters in the same room together and we were finding that we were bringing because we're bringing characters together from all across 
all of the televised Star Trek, we, we realized on a few occasions that we were doing scenes that were the very first time those characters were in a room together. And suddenly it's like, oh, you know, you can't let that pass. That opportunity to have this character and this character. I, I mean, I'm being very careful here by, because I'm not going to say which characters they are because I don't want to spoil anything. Mm -hmm. Where we could have these moments where these two characters meet for the first time. It's like, well, if we're going to do that, we want to have a little bit of fun with it. You know, so that was uh, that was uh, interesting because that was something I, I think in the evolution of the story, we weren't expecting to find that. And we would find these little nuggets of undiscovered stories like, oh, here's here's a moment to tell something that we weren't expecting. There's a, here, here's a cool opportunity to fold something into the greater narrative that we were creating. And that was part of the, the whole joy of that process was for me, just being in a room with two really talented writers virtually speaking, right? And just jamming on story ideas. You know, I, I imagine it's like, you know, when uh, jazz musicians talk about how, you know, one guy starts noodling around, another guy starts playing something. And then before you know it, you, you, you have a great piece of music. I've always felt like that when I'm working with really talented writers, because you come in and you, nobody wants to be the one who lets the side down, right? Everybody wants to bring their A game to it. So you pitch like, well, here's my best idea. And then somebody else goes, well, here's my cool idea. And when the, the ideas kind of mesh and merge, it's not like it's one plus one equals two. It's more like a geometric position. It's like your idea cubed and suddenly it's like, oh, but wouldn't it be cool if we did this? And if we did this and suddenly the, the energy and the excitement comes out of it. And, and man, it's just so cool to be part of a process like that. And I'm so hoping that it kind of comes out on the page. Oh, I think it certainly comes out on the page. But I've got one last question before we move into our spoilerful section where we'll just talk about like the actual guts of Moments Asunder too. Mm -hmm. So my last question is actually about the video games in my background, right? Star Trek Invasion, I thought was a great PlayStation game. I actually read through your AOL homepage at one point many, many years ago before it went down where wow. you explained a lot of like your work on it. I don't remember all of it, but I remember that it was yours, right? So I actually wanted to ask you about this because I know that's a licensing nightmare. But at any point in your years since working on Invasion, did you ever consider bringing some of the content that you invented for Invasion into the Litverse somehow, like the Kamjate or the Typhon, anything like that, like any of the characters? Like, is that even possible with the literary like rights as they are? Oh, you are damn right, I did. Yeah, I've been. <laughs> I've, I've never. I've never had the opportunity to do it. Is the 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 main character in the game? Um, uh, Lieutenant Cooper is the character, but Lieutenant, uh, he's, well, he's Ensign Cooper in the game. He's, yeah, he's the PC. Yeah. Um, I wanted to write him in as a character on board the Titan, just as a nod to my own con continuity. Even if he just kind of walked in the room and handed Riker a clipboard, right? I could just say, like, there he is. It's part of Star Trek continuity. But I just never had the opportunity to do it, you know. And it's, um, it was, it was really fun working on that project because uh, the. It, it, it's it was it was the very first video game I ever worked on, and I kind of stumbled into the job. I mean, I'm gonna go, we're gonna go on a little sidebar here, but I, I, this is a great story. I like to tell it. Um, I was working for the official Star Trek magazine in the UK, and I was doing some promotion because I was like, I'm a, I'm a big gamer as well. So they sent me off to cover this um, event about Star Trek video games, and the guys who were building Star Trek Invasion, which at the time was called Star Trek Red Squad, if you remember the Red Squad from Deep Space Nine. Yep. Um, and the, the guys from Red Squad, uh, the guys from the Red Squad Development CDO, were talking to me about this. And they had a very early build of the game, and they said we're we're using resources from this Star Trek magazine article, that's really good. And I said, oh, I wrote that. And they said, oh, we should probably hire you then to, to kind of come and work with us. 
So it's like, yeah, absolutely. And and they were uh, they were a great bunch of guys, but they weren't very Star Trek savvy. And they they did they were like kind of like, well, this ship's hyperdrive, and I was like, it's it's warp drive. And and they're like, and then the laser cannons, I'm like, they're, they're phasers. It's like, and I was like, you know, guys, why don't you let me let me just take over here and I'll I'll, I'll do this for you, you know. And so, I came in and I kind of Star Trekked it up for them, and and we had an absolute blast putting this game together. And I really enjoyed it, you know. We uh, we did talk about a sequel at one point, which was going to be for the PlayStation Two. That never got off the ground. And there was even a talk about uh, we were going to do a tie-in novel to follow on with the storyline. Would have been so good. I know, right? You know, it's, I, I pitched it. I still, I'm, I think somewhere I still have the outline for it. Um, but the the game wasn't as big as a success, sadly. If I think if it have, if we'd have done the sequel game, maybe there would have been a tie-in. Novel. <laughs> but um, you know, but it was fun. It was it was a very fun project, uh, and it's always going to have a lot of love in my heart because it was kind of the first big Star Trek thing. I got to work on uh, in the video game world my first big video game project. Yeah, that's actually interesting. So Invasion's one of the very few video games of the Star Trek franchise where we actually know who the writer was. We know it's you, right? Most other games, they simply don't label one. Like you can't figure out who wrote Armada or Armada 2 or Legacy or whatever, right? Which is interesting because you'd figure that somebody would want to be identified with those works if they're particularly proud of them. But you have this passion for Invasion. It was very evident in your website. So I'm just glad I was able to get you to talk about it a little bit. And I'd love to know your outline for Invasion 2 at some point, because that just sounds great. <laughs> I have to dig it out. You know, what's really nice is we're talking about a game now that's 20 years old. And I still get people sending me, like, fan art of the ships and still talking about, you know, the, the unique designs we had. I mean, because, you know, Trek techie nerds are a whole subset of Trek fandom, right? People who love just the ships and the technology and there's there is a lot of love from people there who always say oh we love the the big typhon class sort of like the star trek version of Battlestar galactica you know exactly uh, and the and the uh, the valkyrie ships is i one of my prized possessions actually is uh, a guy who is a fan who who built these 3d models and he um he did he got a he got a 3d printer and he made me a tiny little model of a, of a of a um yeah, yeah, kind of that sort of scale. Oh, it's very cool. So I've yeah. got a whole world carrier and I've got like a ship from Star Trek Online too. So I'm totally with you. I haven't printed out stuff from Invasion because I haven't found any good quality models of them that I totally would. Yeah, he, he, he built me uh, this this model of the, of the Valkyrie Spacefire in the same scale as the Eagle Moss ships. Oh, nice. So that has pride of place on my shelf. It's, it's very cool. All right, so we're gonna move into our spoilerful section now, Dad. Yeah, so if you're listening or watching and you don't want to be spoiled for Moments Asunder, pause now, stop now, go read the book, come back, and then continue listening. Also, this isn't going to be a recap like we sometimes do. This is going to be specific questions about events of Moment Asunder uh, that uh, James may or may not answer given um, you know the those laser sights that are pointed to him outside the window. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. so um man i don't know um there's there's two really big events in this book for me that stood out and i'm gonna go with the big the biggest one for me because um i'd like to say that time zero was my coming of age into star trek i'd been watching it for a couple of years ever since locutus and you know i was a kid but i remember when time zero came out 
it was the first time I discovered the concept of the season finale. Like I was conscious of it. And my mom was like, no, no you, it's, it's over. You have to wait three months. And I was like, what? And I remember putting, putting on, putting on the, t- putting on the, ch- the tube on the channel that's supposed to have Star Trek every Sunday when Star Trek came on to be like, is it back yet? Is it back yet? Is it back yet? Is it back yet? And then finally it was back. And I was like, so just overjoyed. So time zero nostalgically is my favorite of all of the series, even though, you know, there's other categories. Oh, you don't know torture until you saw the uh, best of both worlds. Part one. (laughs) That summer was the long. And I, I happily (laughs) defer to the fandom in that regard. But, um, my question is, how did you guys come back with the Davidians? So, we wanted a, We talked about who the threat force would be in the story. And pretty soon, after kind of kicking around ideas, we were like, do we want it to be a person? Do we want it to be a villain in, this, in the same sense of, like, Hugh or the Borg Queen? You know, somebody or, you know, or any of the, any, like, Soren from, from Generations or Ruafo from, uh, from Insurrection. Like, do we want it to be somebody, a physical person, who we can have as a mouthpiece for kind of events and, 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 and descriptiveness and stuff? And the more we thought about it, the more it was kind of like, if, if we do that, we encapsulate everything in one person and it didn't feel big enough. And we talked about the threats that we've seen in, in Star Trek before. And we kept coming back, I think, to the initial kind of concept of the Borg. Before you had the Borg Queen, when they were just the, the collective, when they didn't have a face, per se. And that always terrified me because fighting the Borg is like arguing with a hurricane right it's like you know mm-hmm. or, or if you go back to the the terminator thing was it like what, what reese says you know it can't be bargained with it can't be reasoned with and it absolutely will not stop until you're dead that's terrifying because you know as, as human beings we're kind of programmed to to if we get into a fight with something we can either beat it with strength or we can argue our way out of it but if you come across something that is absolutely alien to you and there's no way you can connect with it and it would just roll right over you. That God, that's terrifying, right? That's the absolute most terrifying idea there is. There's no humanity so to appeal to. So we started looking at, well, how can we, how can we stimulate that fear? Not just in our characters, but in our readers. What can we, what can we touch on? And we want, we knew that we wanted to go back and bring something from Star Trek's past. So we looked at a lot of different threat force races. And the thing about the Davidians is, if you look at what the Davidians are, they're pretty damn scary. Yeah. And Time's Arrow, to be honest really doesn't really give them the the juice and the space that they deserve because they kind of get dealt with and it's like oh we finished with that sort it out and i'm like wait a minute we're talking about a race of creatures here that are invisible travel through time and eat terror how could you not crap your pants at the thought of something like that wandering around out in space right they're really scary and you know, we only really get to see a little bit of that in that episode, and we never get to see them come back. And the more we thought about it, it's like, you know, there's because they're such a blank canvas, there's not been much written about them. We were free to bring them back, and we were free to build more into them. And once we kind of slotted that in, that helped us develop the, the main threat of the story, and we realized that we had an opportunity to not only kind of reach back to TNG and say, here's, here's something that wasn't developed well, an interesting threat force that we can build upon, but it also dovetailed with the direction that we wanted to take it in is this building sort of cosmic drama, this temporal apocalypse that we're creating for the novels. 
these guys were just a perfect fit for us and they have that that sort of you know force of nature quality to them is that all they're interested in is just consuming and they're just going to eat everything and the way they do that is by bringing you to the absolute heights of terror who is not going to be absolutely frightened out of their wits by the idea of a foe like that so once we once we kind of found all these points that just came together really well we're like these guys are perfect for what we want so you reminded me of the setup for star trek 2 the wrath of khan uh, how do we what's going to be the, the big thing who do we come up with who's going to be the baddie and i don't recall who did it but someone went back into tos and i think watched everything and space seed was that episode that kind of sparked that okay here's the person we're going to catch up with the interesting character that we're going to center this this revenge story around so when you're going back and going through because tng was certainly had a lot more seasons movies uh, different choices that, that you could have, <clears throat> excuse me, you could have picked. How, who came up with, with the Davidians? Because I did not see that coming at all. And I it, I didn't even think that. I'm, I was trying to guess who who were they going to reveal this this force as? I thought I was going, it was going to be something completely new. And when it turned out to be them, I was like, oh, yeah that's great but they were only in two episodes and i and i get that you structured star trek 2 completely off of one episode of the original series so this book is going off of uh, an, an entity that was in two episodes so it's more but who who came up with and said hey the davidians and why them and not say the iconians well you know, now I think about it, I don't remember who, which one of us it was who kind of said, how about the, who, how about these guys? I mean, I remember we had a list of, of possibles. Who else and, was on said list? And I'm just trying to think, I'm trying to think now, you know, I think <laughs> like uh, we didn't, like, I think the Iconians, we'd already done stories about the Iconians in the past when we did the, the Demons of Air and Darkness right. series few, uh, quite a few years ago now. So it's like, we felt like they'd been done the, the reason I think the Divisions work is not only did they tick all the right boxes for what we wanted as a bad guy, but because they hadn't been done. Is oh. nobody had gone back and retold that story and developed the Davidians anymore. It's like we were we just thought that they're you know they're a, they're a, they were a missed opportunity. So we had a chance to kinda of, in a way kind of redeem them as villains and say, you know, not only were they they were dangerous, but they were way more dangerous than you think. Uh, in fact actually there's there's a scene I wrote um, in um, Ashes of Tomorrow, where Picard is giving a briefing to the president of the Federation and says, says basically like the president's like, what's going on? What, what happened in Moments of Sundown? And it's the, it's the kind of recap scene where, well, here's what happened. Here's who these bad guys are. And, and he has a moment where he's kind of thinking to himself, you know, I really should have paid a bit more attention back there in times, in the episode Times Arrow, because we dealt with those guys and we moved on and I thought it was done. And it's interesting you say like, you, you touch back on um, Ratha Khan there as well. Similar thing, you know, Kirk leaves Khan behind on, on, on the planet and he's like, oh, we're done with that. 
and then it comes back to bite him in the ass, right? Oh, this, it sure did. And this is a similar situation. Is you know, and Picard feels a degree of guilt. He's like, you know, we thought we dealt with these guys. We thought they were like four or five guys in a cave somewhere. And it's like, <laughs> oh no, no way wrong. And in fact, you know, the and it's like, like as I said about that point that Dayton made, it's much worse than you think. And that is and kind that, of the that's the sort of the reveal we're doing as these books go on. Is, is every time you think you've read the first book and you think you know what's going on right now let me tell you it's much worse than you think oh, that's it, definitely a given yeah. i think right like we've only gotten one book in a third we're not going to solve the mystery of who's doing what and how they're doing it in the first yeah. third of the series it doesn't make any sense this is our teaser this is what they're they're tantalizing us with in the first book i think and what you came up with was you thought the board were bad oh it's kind of that sort of reaction like well holy shit, we did we thought the board were bad we've seen nothing this and makes epic this makes what i like like i just want to quip like this makes the borg digging into 8472's territory look like a mining operation compared to what's happened in moments asunder <laughs> and then they got their ass to kick doing it yeah what i like about the the davidians as bad guys is is there is the subtle is the kind of like the they're very subtle and insidious right up until the point when they're not and it's the kind of thing that just sne- it's the it's the kind of threat that just sneaks in through the back door and you you're not even aware it's slitting your throat until it's got the knife there yeah yeah and and um you know star trek always does a great job of taking kind of real world things and 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 sort of reflecting them in a sci-fi universe and the thing i kept thinking was is in a way the davidians are kind of like a it's a metaphor for climate change because it's a is this thing that's been going on for a long time and people who have not been paying attention to it and then and now suddenly it may kill us all mm-hmm. and it felt yeah. like you know, that that kind of idea was in the back of my head about like you know the, the the real world equivalent of something and i thought that's the the kind of the kind of fear that you feel you start thinking to yourself oh what what if i'm actually i can't get out of because i wasn't paying attention and now it's already here that sort of emotion was something that I, I kept coming back to every time I wanted to write about the Davidians. I kept thinking, what's it like when you wake up and go, oh my God, the call is coming from inside the house. You know, it's it's already too late. It's already too late to stop it. So what do you do next? Is it's like, you know, do you do you do you give up? Do you give in to and, and this is a thread that kind of goes through um Ashes of Tomorrow is do you give in to fatalism and you say, well, I can't do anything about this. So you know, do I run out of the clock or do you say, no, I'm going to fight right down to the very last second, even for the slimmest of possible opportunities to win through because to do anything else would be, would be to surrender. And that is something that uh, characters in the story will, you know, view, talk from both of those viewpoints because they're facing, you know, a, a cosmic level threat, unlike anything that we've seen in the Star Trek universe before. You know, it's funny. So when I was in, uh, in elementary, I I don't remember where I heard the story, but I told the story of the the whole the calls coming from the inside of the house and just spooked these kids because because the first time I heard that that stuck with me for a while. That was just completely terrifying. And you're right, the Davidians are the same way. Now it's different from the the Romulans, the Klingons, Ferengi. They're all right there. You've got your your spies or intelligence uh, agencies you can kind of keep tabs on what they're doing uh, you can generally catch them in the act of trying to do something big but with the davidians they were practicing in other timelines 
in, in other realities. So you had no reason to su suspect them because after the incidents in, in Times Arrows, like that was the last you ever heard of them. There were no other plots or, or secrets or things that they were trying to do that somewhere in the Alpha Quadrant was, was discovered. So you had no reason to think about them or to think that they were a threat. And that's the part that's also kind of scary is they're doing all of their operations in other timelines. So they're, they're completely off the radar. And that's the thing is once they were ready and had those skills honed, now it's kind of too late because you didn't realize they were they were doing all, doing all of this. They weren't under the uh, the microscope of the Alpha Quadrant uh, powers. They were just not only off the radar, they were just <laughs> completely over here in a different time, different reality, different universe. And that's you're you're right. It was very much the the calls coming from inside the house sort of thing. Honestly, to me, the best comparison for the story that the Davidians are running is actually a Doctor Who story. It reminds me so much of when a good man goes to war, right? Which is when the Doctor goes throughout time to build up this whole thing to achieve his goal. He gets these guys from this point in time. He gets those guys from that point in time, brings them all together after he's prepared and trained with them or whatever to rescue his child or whatever, right? Here we've got the Davidians doing the same thing. They've been traveling through time, doing experiments, testing their technology, testing their metal essentially and then once they prepared and finished it they were going to go back to the present and mess with reality as they expected so it's it's very similar to that little bit of story for me is it oh yeah the driving force for the davidians is it's greed right mm -hmm. and all of us it's hunger right all of us can understand that gluttony um, and with them it's just it, but it's just grown and grown and grown beyond sort of like you know beyond one beyond the bounds of one physical universe beyond the bounds of one timeline and it, it can't be sated and it is going back to like i said before the idea of the sort of arguing with the hurricane the force of nature is it's something that it's becoming so big so powerful that it puts multiple timelines to uh, um in danger and you know the 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 idea of the davidians kind of having been off grid doing this all the time I love the I love the idea of that is that, that you know while the federation was looking the other way dealing with loads of other stuff this has slowly been bubbling away in the background for decades or you know or even thousands of years because the davidians kind of you know they're time travelers so they're a time active race so you know that we don't know they could have been doing this stuff for thousands and thousands of years into the past and and maybe just the element that we saw in time's arrow was they just happened to accidentally bump into something that they were doing but in fact, this insidious plot has been going on for a very, very long time. Yeah, time is almost immaterial to them, right? If you can spend your entire existence traveling through time, it doesn't take. It doesn't matter whether it happened five thousand years ago or five thousand years hence. It's right. Not much different for them. If if Picard blows up the cavern in twenty three sixty eight, then that's uh, that's a milestone that the Davidians were already aware of. They've already compensated for it. They've already moved off world by that time. That's why there were only five dudes in a cave waiting for an away vision. You know, they were just waiting. It they're totally makes sense. The, think they're the patsies. They're the guys that we'll, we'll put them here <laughs> because once they're gone, everyone's going to be th thrown off the scent. Can you imagine if we had time travel now? You say you wanted you had an army you wanted to mm -hmm. invade the u.s there is no way you're going to 
even come close to being able to to amass the the military and the training needed for something like that so you say well you know what let's go tens of thousands of years in the past when there's in between the dinosaurs and and, and early man where there's no one around anywhere and spend as much time as you need practicing and rehearsing and then come back and you've got the whole thing figured out and nobody was aware at all so James, I wanted to ask you about a particular plot point that comes up in Moments of Sunder that I'm sure is going to get more exploration as we go. So if you can't answer, that's fine. But I want to understand more about the weapon ship um, that Torek had extracted future like data from that he had to hide with the DTI or whatever. So here's my question about it. That's a very convenient explanation for why the timeline that our characters are in is a branching damage timeline. That all makes sense. Was that concept that the Rakilan weapon ship uh, came from an alternate future already established when that book came out or was that a retcon essentially you guys realized oh that that's our easy explanation for things I think um, I mean that's more of a question that Dayton would be able to answer mm -hmm. better than me but yeah um, I believe he'll correct me if I'm wrong but I believe the idea was always that, that it came from a parallel timeline because I think there's a there's a moment where there's Borg ships they're kind of like in some of the some of the data they have they see borg ships and they're like well they were like if this was our timeline there wouldn't be borg ships there because the borg are gone right so there was always the idea that it jumped from a parallel reality bringing gotcha. this information with it I mean, so that did predate coda then because that yeah. that's very interesting to me that he that this that lines up so well with the damaging of the timeline that's necessary for the davidians to want to eat it it's almost like we thought of it uh <laughs> Are you sure you haven't what? invented time travel? Right, right. right. That's what? a lot of uh, predestination right there. I'm just curious, I mean, again, which book did that happen in where Torek... Is that Armageddon's... Um, Arrow. Armageddon's Arrow? Okay. Is that... um, I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, I mean, again, uh, Dayton will correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong about this, but it was my understanding that, you know, what Dayton had done there is he built himself kind of an escape hatch. So oh. the 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 definition of what the information was is nicely vague so that in future books if there was a need to say okay we need the information to be this thing then it would fit and if it, we need it to be this other thing it would also fit that's very clever he very built a back door in the firewall yeah it's, it's like if, if there's there's a um there's a trope in writing called chekhov's gun if you've ever heard of that yep. yes and the idea is, is for, for anybody out there who's not familiar with this time, is, is the idea is if, if, you're, if you're writing a three-act play and someone uses a gun in act three, you need to have the gun on the table in act one. So, so people go, oh, there's a gun on the table. And then when someone picks up an act three and shoots the guy, you go, oh, right, okay, that makes sense. Instead of just pulling the gun out of his pocket and you go, I didn't know he had a gun. That's, that's crazy, you know, and it feels, like it, it feels like it hasn't been earned. So part of the, the stuff with the weapon ship is is Dayton taking his own narrative and going, well, I can use what I already wrote to kind of lead in nicely into the events of Moments of Sunder. It's, you know, part of, it's part of the development process that we went through is we were looking for previous books going, what can we pull together so it will feel like it makes sense? So it looks like years from now when everybody's forgotten about this conversation we're having right now, people will go, those guys are so smart. They were planning this for years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I mean, as far as being smart and planning things for years, like, so there's one sentence of this that I thought was brilliantly 
uh, detailed inside of Moments Asunder. So there's a moment where Picard beams down onto the planet that has the future archive from the Davidians, right? It's in the future or whatever. And he notes that it reminds him of Mars after the terraforming, but before they finish putting up like additional terraforming details or whatever, right? Which reminds us that in 24th century, like Starfleet, there are two habita habitable worlds in our system, right? If you look at the Picard opening scenes where they burn Mars, essentially, they forgot. Mars is a red desert hellscape still, right? Like they'd forgotten that the Metreon, not what Metreon, the Verderon array in Mars from Enterprise was working on terraforming Mars, right? Like there's a whole big disconnect there. And I'm just really impressed that you guys remembered to terraform Mars uh, because it doesn't come up basically ever in the show except a couple scattered things and they forgot it when they wrote the card. So kudos there. I was super impressed by that tiny little snippet. You know, I mean, I have to say the reason Mars, Picard Mars looks like Mars Mars is because if you made it look like terraform Mars, people wouldn't know that it was Mars. Oh, yeah. Well, it's common denominator planning is bad. So, or you know, all the terraforming and colonization happened over on the other side of the planet. <laughs> <laughs> it is a freaking planet, man. It still looks right. like it's nice and, nice and green with fields and stuff. Should have um, just detonated a Genesis weapon on Mars. That would have been a lot faster. Right? But yeah. you want to keep Mars around afterwards. That's true. So th this thing about the uh, the Requilon ship did so now is that your way of saying that even this reality that we've been in for the the Bronze Era of the books, well, this is actually not even the prime timeline either. Is 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 that what it's what it's doing? The the, the books have never been the prime timeline. Oh okay, well, let me let me reword that. Um, Okay, it's spelling so, it out the, for the for the for the readers specifically yeah. saying this is not what you thought it was R right it just not the prime timeline prime timeline but in regards to the books like the books own prime timeline is that a way of saying well you might have thought it was but psych it's not oh no no the the it, so if we want to talk about like okay what timelines are there in star trek i mean Okay, this is, there's a lot, right? I mean, oh god, yeah. We've got like you know, we've got the Kelvin timeline, we've got the Prime timeline, we've got the the Litverse timeline, and then we've got how many other sort of little sub branching universes that we've seen in other shows. Uh, we've also got the Star Trek Online timeline, which is slightly different. In fact, actually, I I actually have a, a couple of little nods to characters from STO turn up in Ashes of Tomorrow. I'll uh, look for those. I'm a big player of the game. That's cool. Yeah. I, I deliberately put in some STO references just to sort of say, you know, this is not, you know, what I was saying is that this is not the STO timeline, but there's no reason to believe that we can't have characters who are in that timeline in this timeline as well. I got to get caught up on that game. That's really because cool. Kind of, you know, they all sort of cross connect. I do love that. But in terms of like, you know, the, the timeline that we see from the future ship, that's, that's another branching um, possibility. Um, we are running up on our time. I have one last question. Uh, you mentioned that the green light for pitches comes from the top down. Um, is the top now saying that there will be no more tie-in novels for the stories of, of this era, or should we just read Oblivion's Gate? Well, um, you mean uh, there will be no more timelines for the Litverse? 
Right. Cool. Will you not be allowed to write books expanding on the characters as you've written them for the last 20 years? Is it, basically, is this like a clean cut? Is, is that... Well, I don't... No, no one has come to me and said that, but it is my personal belief that, yes, this is the end. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean, we're not saying that's the end for Star Trek fiction. Absolutely not. Of course. Clearly not. There are more Star Trek stories coming. You know, the, but the continuity we created here in the Litverse and that, that ongoing narrative, that serial narrative, this is, the, this is the conclusion of that. But there will be more Star Trek stories. And, you know, if we, I mean, if we bring back elements that we created in the Litverse and do new incarnations of them in, in novels, I have already done that. I have already brought characters back from my Litverse Titan novels in my Star Trek Picard uh, Titan novel. Yeah, and, I was thinking that. You know, it's like, it's, it's a little bit, we, we've talked a lot about the way the, the, the guys over in the galaxy far, far away in the Star Wars universe have dealt with we're having right now. You know, just kind of dropped the hammer and they said, that's it. No right. You know, you didn't, didn't, didn't give an opportunity to kind of close them off. What well, we're, we're lucky here that with Star Trek, because of the nature of Star Trek, and Star Trek is something that has parallel realities and multiple timelines, we're lucky that we get to tell a story like this that does bring closure to that narrative. I love yeah. it. Was, that was in yeah, the afterward of Moments of Sunder. It was just for the uh, uh, Star Wars EU, just one day, gone, yes. gone. And we. And we didn't want to do that because, you know, we felt like that that would be, that would do a disservice to the readership and to all the writers and to all of the work that's been done. Now, if you take a look at what's going on in the Star Wars universe now, you will see that the, the ongoing continuity of Star Wars is they're cherry picking cool bits out of the lit verse, the Star Wars lit verse going, that's pretty cool. Yeah, they're Let's bringing back Thrawn, cool. they're bringing back yeah. this. Yeah, they're picking and choosing. It's like the it's like the buffet effect, right? So you go, well, that looks tasty. I'll have a little that. I don't fancy the broccoli, but I'll have some of the ham. You know, <laughs> you, pull little, you pull the little bits out, and you have that, and you put that on your plate, right? There is no reason why we won't be able to do that with Star Trek moving forward. Now, I don't know if there are any plans. I'm not privy to any information about that. This is my personal hope that you know, going forward, if there is a piece of storyline, a character, an element that is cool from the lip verses that yeah maybe we can import that across there's no reason why we can't do that what we're we're on the verge now of a brand new era in star trek storytelling where everything old is new again where the 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 slate has been cleared and we can tell new stories we can bring we can even maybe bring back characters that we wrote about and tell stories about them in completely different ways i love the idea of you know, somebody picking up a future novel and saying, oh, this character from the Litverse is in it. I know everything about them. And then the story goes in a completely different direction and does something totally unexpected and completely pulls the rug out from underneath you. I think that would be so cool to see somebody do something like that. So this is, um, this is an opportunity for us to kind of refresh and renew. And, you know, I think Dayton put it best. He said, we're changing lanes here. We're kind of pulling freeway onto a different road and we're moving into synchronicity with what's being done on the television shows. And that will be the direction that we take moving forward. Right on. I love it. I love it. James, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Uh, Renzo, Big J, glad to be here with you as always. Um, for the audience, uh, this is part two of our 
three-part interview session. We'll be back next month with David Mack to roll out Oblivion's Gate. In the meantime, uh, if you're listening to this right now, Ashes of Tomorrow is available today. Go pick up that book. Pick up Moments Asunder and read that one first, if you haven't already. And thank you for always going boldly with Beyond Trek Podcast. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to our Patreon and Anchor supporters. Big thanks to Stephanie Baker, S. Tam, Anne Marie, Jim Cook, and Nora Hickson. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for being a part of Beyond Trek Podcast. We are Beyond Trek Podcast. Lower your inhibitions and surrender your years. We will add inspirational and hilarious Trek content to your day. Your attention will adapt to subscribe to us. Resistance is futile.